Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. The very first thing I want to do is I want to tell those who are being confirmed and received and are reaffirming their vows uh, this morning how proud I am of them, how happy I am that they are here. This was a big step on their part, and I'm, I'm most proud of them. I also want to thank those of you who helped prepare them for this day, uh, the, the clergy and the, the teachers of confirmation classes and uh, I'd like you folks to stand up so we could give you a, a hand of applause. If you've been helping to prepare the folks for Confirmation Reception Day, please stand up. <laughs> and the other group I'd like to thank is a group that often is forgotten, and that is the family members of those people being confirmed. Those younger members, parents uh, worked hard to support them in that, maybe had to drive them to confirmation class sometimes, had to find time in their schedules. Spouses and family members of the, of the older uh, confirmands or people being received, you also had to make sacrifices. So if you're in that group, family member, of a confirmand or somebody being received this morning, would you please stand up and let's give you a hand of applause. Why get confirmed? Why get confirmed? That's the question that we're, we have before us today, don't we? Now, most of the confirmations that I do as bishop take place in a local parish, and before I arrive to do the service of the laying on of hands, I ask the candidates to send me a letter to share their answer to that question with me. So by now, I've read hundreds of those letters, and I can share with you some of the answers that I get to that question, why be confirmed? Many adults talk about their spirit journeys. Most have, had try, most have tried many other churches at some point in their lives between set, before settling on the Episcopal Church. Others were raised in a church but have fallen away from organized religion for one reason or another. Sometimes a crisis, an, an illness, death, or divorce have brought them back into church. Gay and lesbian people often tell me about the sense of welcome that they feel in the Episcopal Church after facing rejection in other brands of Christianity. Younger people speak of the sense of extended family that they feel and how much they enjoy serving as an acolyte or being a camper at Chapel Rock in the summer or taking a mission trip with the youth group. Some young people are even honest enough to admit they're not quite sure why they're being confirmed, but their parents told them they should be. <laughs> now, except for this last one, these are all pretty good reasons. But they lead us to a larger question. Why be part of the church in the first place? It's pretty clear by now that being a Christian is no longer a socially acceptable thing that it might have been at one time. We are no longer a Christian nation, as many once claimed to be, 
when the stores were closed on Sundays, the majority of Americans belonged to their local church, hundreds of kids were in Sunday school, and the public school day began routinely with a scripture lesson and the Lord's Prayer. All organized religions in this country are in decline in terms of membership and financial support. While many millennials see the church as not only irrelevant to their lives, but downright hostile to their values. That doesn't mean that Americans are not interested in spirituality. More than in any other country, Americans say that they believe in God and pray daily. Still, an increasing number, about 30% now, of folks will say to you a phrase that you've probably all heard, that they are spiritual but not religious, meaning that God may be important to them, but the church is not. As a college chaplain friend of mine tells me, the sentence that he hears more than any other from college students is, love Jesus, hate the church. Being a Christian is less and less socially acceptable, and I think that may actually be a good thing. Having visited churches in other parts of the world, I can tell you that the church does its best job when it lives at the margins of society, even when it is under pressure or discriminated against. For example, one of the most vital churches I visited was the Anglican Church in Taiwan, where Christians make up only a tiny, tiny part of the total population, and Episcopalians are even a smaller group. And yet those brothers and sisters have an impact on their country vastly greater than you would expect from their numbers. They support hospitals, run one of the country's major universities, Well, their local congregations are packed on Sundays, and their churches serve as meeting places for all kinds of programs during the week, and they are growing. This should not come as a surprise when we look at the history of the church. The church experienced its biggest period of growth from about 100 to 400 A.D., during the time that it was actively persecuted by the Roman government, before the Emperor Constantine made it socially acceptable to be a Christian. The early church strangely experienced some of its most explosive growth when Christians were being killed for their faith. The early church writer Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That seems almost crazy to us, but it seems that the more dangerous it was to be a Christian, the more people wanted to be part of the Jesus movement. In those days, the church didn't grow by knocking on doors or putting out welcome signs. Far from it. Sunday worship was held in secret places like the catacombs under the city of Rome, and strangers were not even allowed to attend, nor were people attracted by megachurch-style worship and praise bands. People were inspired to become Christians by the way that Christians live their lives, how much they follow Jesus. 
And that meant that Christians lived much differently than other people. Most thought they were crazy, or at least pretty weird. They shared their possessions. They cared for the sick. They refused to use violence. They would not worship the state. They didn't divorce their spouses or expose unwanted babies. They were, as we would say, countercultural. There are several modern theologians, and I am in sympathy with them, that say that we need to return to the example of the early church, which means that we too need to become countercultural and reclaim our core values as Christians rather than get sucked into the money and power games going on all around us. We will grow as a church by being different from the rest of the world rather than trying to fit in with the rest of the world. Let me just give you a little example of how this works. Some of you here may remember our former youth director for the diocese, Matt Marino. Matt grew up in a home that was hostile to the church. He had no church upbringing at all. In fact, he was told the church was a bad thing by his parents. And when he was in high school, he noticed that there were a group of boys on his high school team that acted differently than everybody else. They spoke respectively about the girls. They didn't swear. They did what the coach asked them to do. They didn't go out causing trouble on Friday and Saturday nights. And he was intrigued by them. And finally one day he got up enough nerve to walk over to them and say, what is with you guys? You're different than everybody else on the team. And they said to him, we're Christians. And he said, a kind of a light switch went off on his, his head. And he said, I want some of that. I want some of that. I want that same kind of peace to be in my life. And that was the beginning of his spiritual journey that led to his conversion. For Matt, it was the way his friends lived their lives that attracted his attention and led to his conversion. It wasn't what his friends said or the books that they gave him to read. Another early theologian said much the same thing over a thousand years ago. Christians don't say, read this or listen to this. They say, Watch this. Witness our faith, not by what we say, but what we do. There is a joking way of saying the same thing. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Do we in our lives demonstrate a different way of living? Do our neighbors even know that we're Christians? How would they find out? These are important questions for us as we celebrate the sacrament of confirmation along with reception and reaffirmation of faith. The candidates who are before us today are called upon not to conform, but to be confirmed. Not conformed to the ways of the world, but confirmed in their trust for Jesus Christ. 
As each of the candidates comes forward this morning, I will lay my hands on them, praying over them and asking God to uphold them in their ministry in the world, a ministry which will probably be difficult and which will hardly in these days make them popular. It might even lead to discrimination or judgment. We need to remember that a word that we often hear in church, the word martyr, means literally in Greek, a witness. Sometimes witnessing to our faith can lead to death, as it does in many places of the world today, especially in the Middle East. If you're a Christian, your life is in jeopardy. But for us, more likely it leads to physical and emotional challenges and rejection by the rest of the world. But that's how it has always been. The great Christian, the great German theologian and martyr who was murdered by the Nazis, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, once said, if your faith doesn't cost you something, it probably isn't worth anything. Being a faithful Christian is a scary thing. But there's also good news this morning. Christians since the earliest days have had the courage to face the sufferings of the world because they knew that whatever they might endure was not the end of the story. Jesus and his resurrection were the end of the story. And that gave them hope and patience, not just to stoically put up with whatever life might dish out, but also to actively follow Jesus into those scary places of pain, prisons, hospitals, slums, there to meet the needs of those groups who were the most vulnerable and hurting. Women, children, lepers, the chronically ill, the poor, the oppressed. That's where Christians could be found, and that is where true Christians can be found today. So, candidates, would you please stand up where you are? In a few minutes, you will be coming before me and of this congregation, before your friends and your family, your mentors, and your fellow Christians. I will lay my hands on you, and we will pray together over you that you might have the strength and courage, and endurance to live the true Christian life. The call that you are answering today is a difficult one, and the vow that you're taking is a serious one. It's a vow to do nothing short than show the world through your words, and more importantly, your actions, that God loves you and that God loves the world. You may have all kinds of reasons for being confirmed today, but when all is said and done, God brought you here, and God will be with you as you leave here. For God has plans for you, and I can promise you this, as a Christian, you are in for the ride of your life.